0: Again, the URL is unchangedcrypto.substack.com.
1: Not a dividend.
2: It's a tale of two quan. Now, your losses are on someone else's balance sheet.
0: Generally speaking, airdrops are kind of pointless, anyways. Um, uh, Unnamed trading firms who are very involved. Um, I
2: like that ETH is the ultimate. Yeah. DeFi protocols
1: are part of the antidote to this problem.
2: All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the chopping block. Every couple of weeks, the four of us get together and give the industry insider's perspective on the crypto topics of the day. So quick intros. First, we've got Tom, the DeFi maven and master of memes. Next up, Robert, crypto connoisseur and captain of Compound. Then you've got Tarun, the gigabrain and grand poobah at Gauntlet. And lastly, you've got myself, and the head hype man at Dragonfly. All four of us are early stage investors in crypto, but I want to caveat that nothing we say here is investment advice, legal advice, or even life advice. So it has been an absolutely insane and harrowing year. Uh, so much stuff has happened this year. It's one of those, um, I think it was, wasn't it Stalin who said, there are weeks when nothing happens, or no, sorry, years where nothing happens and then weeks where decades happen or something like that. This feels like a year where centuries happened.
3: Can I ask you one question? Do we start with the good news first or the bad news first in like, you know, if, if I, in your storytelling style?
2: I think it's hard to begin with bad news because the year started pretty good, right? Like, I mean, Bitcoin was at 50 something K when the year started and like things were feeling, like I remember, so I, I listened back to our, Uh, end of year, the first ever episode of The Chopping Block actually was uh, December like 20th something last year. So it was basically the same time of year last year. And we were looking forward on the year and reflecting on what went well, what went poorly. And we were also optimistic. It's like really crazy how even the things that were negative last year in retrospect were so small and minuscule compared to the horrible things that have befallen people in this industry in 2022. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through actually in the same order that we went through the winners and losers, the biggest winners and losers in all the different categories for last year. So just as a sneak preview, the categories are going to be biggest winner, biggest loser, best mechanism, biggest surprise, best meme, and then we're going to make predictions for 2023. So that's the game plan. We're going to start with biggest winner. Okay. So just as a reminder, last year, what we said in 2021, the biggest winners were L1s. Coinbase from its IPO, Solana, OpenSea, Lido, and Dogecoin. Okay. That's what we said were the biggest winners of 2021. 2022 biggest winners. I know it's hard to find anybody who won this year, uh, but Robert, why don't you start? Who is your 2022 biggest winner for this year?
1: So the biggest winner of 2022 are, I don't know if you've seen this meme on Twitter, Stablecoin bulls, the people that were stablecoin maxing, (laughs) who were posting memes of like ripped blue USDC bulls and anyone who basically was following a market neutral stablecoins-esque strategy. So there were some corners of the industry where people all year were maxing out their stables and just chasing yield wherever they could find it. Now, some of these people chasing yield got felled by CFI landmines, by, you know, DeFi hacks, by whatever. But for the most part, the stablecoin bulls were one of the rare pockets of winners this year.
2: It's funny. I've got one guy who um, replies a bunch to my tweets, who is constantly writing threads about, let me explain to you how this thing is actually going to change the world. Here's a thread. And he wrote one about USDC. And I was like, what is going on? Uh, But that guy, that guy printed this year. That guy did amazing this year compared to the rest of us.
1: Yeah. The people who were chasing, you know, half a percent a month
3: yields, you know, did fantastic this year. There was a UST bull. So maybe not, you may want to, you may want to, you may want to like put a boundary around all all the different bull meme accounts. Even even UST Bull did great this year. I mean, you know, sorry,
1: not UST. Sorry, I thought you said USD. No, 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 <laughs> UST Bull. There was a UST Bull
3: that, that of course, you know.
1: Yeah, I'm sure we're going to cover that, that. was one of the many stablecoin landmines that did exist. But also, Tether didn't blow up this year, even though there was a couple of moments where it traded off, you know, two and a half percent.
0: You know, in general, the stablecoin bulls, you know, were, in my definition, the winners. Totally agree. I mean, also I think just from an issuance and transaction volume perspective, you're hitting new all-time highs in, in stable stablecoins. So not only did they do well from a portfolio perspective, but like from a usage and metrics perspective, stablecoins are kind of killing it right now.
2: Bullish, bullish on stablecoins. Nice. Okay. Uh, Tarun, what is your biggest winner for 2022?
3: You know, I'm not trying to to butter up our host too much, but I actually think Laura Shin had an amazing 2022. She had a, an amazing book that came out. She had a bunch of an amazing scoops with both all of the villains as well as with Martin Shkreli <laughs> last week. She I think she had like probably the best year in crypto journalism of everyone. Like the mainstream media completely blew it. Like Forbes looks stupid cuz all they were doing was like constantly lapping up SBF every week. You know like they did all those crazy articles that like people cite. All the VC funds we know how well their media strategy went. So, like, I gotta say, Laura Shin's kind of, like, last journalist standing, like, really, like, killing it this year. So I'm gonna give her my... my, my And again, I'm not trying to... This is not, like, me sucking up to the teacher, you know, being like, oh, like, I, I actually think she had an amazing year.
2: <laughs> I, I think you're absolutely right about that. However, I just want... I, just, I should add, you know, being that we are on this show, we also had a pretty amazing year in lockstep with Laura, right? Like, we had... Almost every crypto villain on the show, except for 3 hours. 3 hours is the only crypto villain we didn't have on the show.
3: Who has wanted to be on the show.
2: <laughs> it's true. <laughs> uh, and we, I think we've, we've had a pretty good track record of calling stuff out. I think FTX, we messed up. FTX, we did not call out pretty much at all until after FTX blew up. But almost everything else, I think we were fairly prescient before things ended up exploding. So I think um, overall, we end up looking okay. I think Laura definitely looks better than we did, but I, thought, I think Chopping Block was a pretty good year for us.
3: I mean, I mean, Laura had an unreal year, like journalism wise. Like I think like she might, this might be like the bumper year.
1: Well, I'll, I'll add on and say also citizen journalism on crypto Twitter this year had a real breakout performance. I mean, this is one of the years where in general, crypto Twitter was scooping a lot of major stories that later were covered by media organizations. You know, ranging all the way from like, you know, Kobe, you know, finding the insider trading at Coinbase to people, you know, revealing some of the weaknesses at Celsius, you know, people doing research on FTX as it was collapsing. You know, there was, you know, Zach XBT, you know, breaking all of these different, you know, scams and rug pulls like this was a year of citizen journalism on crypto Twitter. And in addition to Laura being great, in addition to us being decent, Crypto Twitter did an awesome job this year,
2: and a runner-up to block explorers. Like so many of the big stories this year, were told through block explorers, and I think a lot of people, a lot of journalists especially, got acquainted with block explorers for the first time this year. All right, Tom, you're up next. Biggest winner.
0: You know, I was still feeling pretty good about my last pick, which is Lido, and they still seem to be crushing it. But in in the interest of doing something new, I'm going to go with DeFi. I think you know this is the story that we kind of keep telling time and time again, which is yes you know, a lot of these C5 Ponzi's have blown up, but DeFi is still doing well. Um, You know, other than the you know hack here and there, sort of the core DeFi primitives are still solvent, users still have money, they're still functioning, they're still issuing loans, a lot of them are making a lot of money. And so I think, you know, this has been sort of a crucible for the industry overall, but I think also a great narrative enhancer for why DeFi is important. And also, obviously, a great it feels like sort of the redemption arc from March 2020 of a lot of these things blowing up or incurring losses or realizing they need to be fixed. This was sort of the flip side of that, of them sort of coming home and uh, showing that these things are very resilient and they, they work as intended um, and they're, they're necessary now. Um, you can't just rely on the trust of you know, any single centralized actor uh, with DeFi. That the proof is on chain.
2: Yeah, it's such a good point. I, I think you said on a previous show that DeFi really went through a hero's journey. I think that's a perfect... Metaphor for kind of the, the the experience of DeFi from 2020 when COVID started to I guess 2022 when COVID ended in some places that DeFi really showed its metal given a challenge of similar proportion to what happened in March 2020 but with a totally different kind of hardened skill set and and maturity than what we saw the last time we saw a crisis for
3: DeFi. One uh, actual question is if there's really a hero's journey, who's going to make the movie?
0: Um, I don't know. There's gonna be for sure an FTX movie, but I don't know if that's gonna cover DeFi. Robert, who would you want to pay you play you in the uh, DeFi movie?
2: Yeah, who's gonna play Robert? That's a great question. Zach Galifianakis. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I would love for Zach to play the DeFi
2: movie. Well, the thing about no, but here's the thing about DeFi is that if if DeFi succeeds, there can't be a movie about it because there are no characters. Hey? hey that's true. Hey?
3: hey. Yeah, I yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah, th- that's true. But I I do kind of feel like there's still a story, like even if the true. characters made the characters are more transient. Like they like have some importance so like and a, they go away.
2: A narrative film without characters, so it's kind of you know like it's like you know Koyaanisqatsi or something.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's uh, you need some uh, anons. You need some voice actors. You know, it can just be like someone voicing dj and Spartan and. Uh, yeah, that's that's sort of the movie. I guess
3: like it right. has to be an anime, right? Is that is that what you're sort of now? <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> I would to, I would a hundred percent watch a DeFi anime. That sounds amazing. Sounds amazing. All right, so my 2022 biggest winner of the year is the EVM. So the EVM has absolutely crushed its primary competitor. Last year was basically a a combination of the Solana virtual machine as well as uh, Wasm. There were a bunch of Wasm-based chains that were really trying to make a run at EVM. And and this idea was coming around that maybe the EVM, which is the Ethereum sort of operating system, so to speak, um, wasn't going to win or was going to be displaced in the the near future. Uh, It's become increasingly clear that that is not going to happen. Now, with the downfall of Solana, nine of the top 10 chains by TVL are all EVM-based. The EVM has just become completely and utterly dominant in everything smart contract based and it's very hard to see that turning around at this point. I think one of the clear winners in a, in a year with not a lot of wins has been the EVM. It's a great pick. Fair enough, all <laughs> right. So, okay.
3: It, I guess actually one addendum maybe to that is um you know, I think one interesting thing to watch is is sort of like whether the ZK EVM kind of version of the world will will be the next iteration or whether it will be other virtual machines that host a, a zk EVM, and like right now we're starting to see like what's the future of the EVM, and I think that's like something to look forward to in 2023 because it's like very it's not clear at all what the the final state is for like the next what's the thing Pokemon do Evol- evolution yeah there we go <laughs> Evolved, <yeah. laughs> Pokemon well, do that's that's your basis for evolution is Pokemon <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> sorry sorry sorry. <laughs> What's that thing that animals do?
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's good. Um, yeah, no, uh, you're absolutely 100%. Um, it, what I, I want to I clarify, actually, in saying that I think the EVM is now dominant does not mean that the EVM is done or that we've reached the end of the line and this is, you know, the, 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 the Charizard of virtual machines, as you will. Uh, in, in fact, it's, it's a sign that there's much more work to do because clearly the EVM is not going to get us to the promised land right? The EVM is still super janky. It's basically unchanged from when it was originally developed. We are like in the, you know, the, the, the action script stage of JavaScript's development. There's so much more that's going to be done, I think to one, improve the EVM, but then second, you know, other virtual machines, I think will still take a run at the EVM and try to improve it at the margin uh, or build upon it and kind of innovate upon the foundation of the EVM, but change things underneath it. But I think EVM is probably going to be now, the, just the lingua franca right the core concepts behind the evm are probably going to be enshrined in how blockchains work
0: do you remember
3: how uh like in the 2000s slash early 2010s there was like a new javascript framework every year that became like the like hot thing for a year and then it would disappear and, and do you feel like that's going to happen here because like i i'm i guess you could argue like the hard hat foundry kind of transition yeah, looks a so- little bit like that
0: yeah yeah i feel like the the dev tooling and framework You know in vogue within crypto turns over over time but like the consistent bit is the evm which is also you know true for javascript
3: yeah it'd be cool to see just like a diagram of like the comparison like the timelines of these two types of things because like i feel i feel like there is like a lot of parallels totally totally
2: okay so Biggest winner. It's kind of a feel good section. I think it's going to be <laughs> the, the biggest loser section is probably going to be quite a bit meatier this year because it was a year of a lot of losses, let's say.
3: Uh, should we do two per person? Because <laughs> I feel like there's the, we, might, we might need a There's a lot of space. If, if you want to do two, you can do two. I'm going to do one.
2: Okay. We'll let people do what they feel in terms of losers. So just to, just to recap, what did we say as biggest losers last year? We said the grayscale GBTC trade, which, oh boy, did we have no idea what was coming on that. Bitcoin, as one of the biggest losers. Hen, which was an early Tezos NFT uh, marketplace. And then EOS. Those are what we said was the biggest losers last year. In retrospect, very naive to say that those, any of those had really lost
3: <laughs> compared to what was coming for them. But okay, biggest loser. Hey, GBTC, GBTC gets some credit. Come on. That one was, a good, that, was that was a good prediction. Even if yeah. it that's the wrong rationale. I'm
2: saying there's much more pain coming. There was so much more pain coming than what we imagined at that time.
1: Yeah, I'll take credit for naming GBTC last year. It was also one of the big losers this year. But, you know, that we'll see what happens next year. Maybe it'll be the big winner next year as it gets unwound.
2: <laughs> so what's your, what's your pick for this year, Robert?
1: Well, I'm going to state the absolutely most obvious award winner for the biggest loser this year. And this might be a slightly controversial take, but I believe that this year the biggest loser was the reputation of the industry from the perspective of outsiders. So starting off with the implosion of Terra and UST, which was one of the fastest growing algorithmic stablecoins and alternative L1 blockchains of all time, um, which did about... You know, directly $60 billion worth of damage and indirectly a couple hundred billion dollars worth of damage to the rest of the industry, following up with the collapse of every single CFI lender, some for, you know, innocuous reasons, some for terrible blunders, some for deliberate fraud. You know, the collapse of every single CFI lender culminating in the collapse of FTX, externally the most respected exchanges of all time. Um, with one of, a, you know, with a founder that was widely, you know, revered outside of our industry, you know, for better or for worse, all of these things, in my opinion, have done, you know, a tremendous amount of damage to the reputation of the industry and collectively, you know, share the award for our industry's loss of, you know, respect this year.
2: Yeah. That's a, it's a very sobering answer. I think you're very right. It's something that I think all of us have experienced just in retrospect, thinking to like what it felt like December last year when all of my friends thought the coolest thing in the world was to be a crypto VC. (laughs) And now it's like the cringiest thing in the world to be a crypto VC. Anecdotally, I have heard from a lot of my friends that um, if they're single, that their dating prospects massively changed between this (laughs) year and last year just because crypto has lost so much face culturally compared to what it felt like in 2021
3: look I, ha- I hate to say it but all four of us are unfortunately for better or worse tarred and feathered with being closer to ian Bellina than we are to you know sanctity this is this is true
2: that's true all right well Tarun, what do you say biggest loser of 2022 in a competitive field
3: my my two i kind of have two that i'm tied for on the tech side because i'm going to try to maybe more focus on like technology side and I, I'm reticent to call out both of these because I actually think they do have vibrant communities and they clearly made a mark. One obviously is the Solana ecosystem. I just think like the sheer number of blows that they've taken is unreal. And if they survive, this is like an ETH 88 dollar event. Like like if Solana's ecosystem survives, like I think they just are a cockroach after this. But if they die, that like this is an insane amount of death blows to get at once. Let's start with the beginning of the year. Wormhole hack mainly affects Solana and needed sort of a, a centralized gatekeeper to step in uh, with the capital buffer, right? Like it, it wasn't able to like kind of reconcile itself. On, so. And then, you know, I think a lot of the interesting thing was there's a lot of ties between the Solana ecosystem and to some extent the Luna ecosystem, partially because bridging was actually easy between them. And, you know, that started really like the spiral of like people just starting to remove money. Then there were a bunch of hacks, partially because a lot of the DeFi protocols and Solana were just never open source or not audited. And and like, I think in like the Gaga days of 2021, no one really cared. But obviously this year, I think people started to pay more attention. And then, of course, you know, you had the Mango hack, you had FTX. The thing that's interesting is the people who are still around in Solana Land do seem to have the mentality that I feel like ETH people had. So I'm hoping that they can get a little bit of a reprieve just because, you know, there's a lot of really smart, hardworking people in that ecosystem uh, who are not like just like and NFT, whatever traders. They actually are like trying to build new technology and that has a particular philosophical vision of what it should look like. And there's pros and cons to it. Yeah, I mean, also, I, I forgot to mention the biggest one, in, in my mind, to some extent, was the loss of Serum, because a lot of their DeFi ecosystem was built around Serum as sort of like the main liquidity center.
2: The thing that's really interesting is that, uh, so actually, one of the predictions you made last year was that there was going to be a massive hack within the Saloon of Ax ecosystem, which you had, like many times over, you were definitely right about that. But a lot of us thought last year, you sort of called out the, the closed source nature of Solana, It wasn't really because of hacks that Solana ended up bleeding out its DeFi. Uh, Actually, that was happening much more aggressively on BSC, which has actually been more resilient than Solana on the DeFi side. It seems like Solana DeFi really was a death by a thousand cuts because of liveness. Is that just the blockchain kept going down this year, especially for the first half of the year, due to all these like crazy NFT kind of uh, thundering herds.
3: But also the hacks, even the bridge hacks caused liveness losses, right? Like,
2: but the, but the bridge hack was made whole, right? So like people actually didn't lose money on the hacks in Solana. They lost no, a no, lot no, of money a, on BSC. A,
3: lo, a, a lot of the DeFi users have lost money. So in Solend, for instance, one of the craziest things that you would see right after the Wormhole hack, because at that time, Wormhole had synthetic assets. So like you lock up ETH on ETH and you get this like IOU like WETH like thing on Solana. And the peg, that thing depegged significantly. And so people were using as collateral being marked one-to-one on Solana Mm -hmm. as it was equal to an ETH, but it actually was redeeming for much less. And like the the DeFi users actually took some huge losses in the hacks that are different than just like people crossing. Like lenders on the Solana side who lent USDC Solana took huge losses. So my point is like there's all this stuff that it is definitely death by a thousand cuts but there's a lot of stuff that went wrong. And I think part of it is like all the things that grew last year needed to give this like kind of pump effect to each other constantly. And so like when that all explodes, even if you actually are like the one who, who has a lot of things that didn't intrinsically blow up, you're being constantly in the shrapnel is going to just like really, really hurt you from, from many different versions of the world. So I, but like I said, I, 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 you know, I even though in my mind, they are the, certainly the biggest loser on the technology side, I think a lot of other things that were sort of weird were like, I think the Solana phone was kind of like a crazy thing that's like a an idea that people, you know, makes a lot of sense because like, actually, it's like really hard to get phone manufacturers to like build trusted enclaves for certain types of keys and stuff like that, right? But like, it feels like they did a bunch of stuff prematurely that like now doesn't look that great in in hindsight. So I I put them. I I and the other thing I tie with them is probably the NFT ecosystem. I just think like I it's like there's just so much that went wrong there. I feel like this year, and I don't know where to start with that. (laughs) Um, I uh, Robert quit NFTs. Robert quit NFTs this year.
2: That's true. That's true.
3: That's true. I I quit NFTs
1: this year. Yeah.
2: I mean, if you look at NFT daily monthly actives. And you look at NFT mints, actually, those numbers look pretty healthy. So I think it's not, it's a mixed story.
0: I I was going to say, NFTs are surprisingly resilient. I think they're like kind of isolated, they're in their own little world for the most part. And so, yeah, from like a user numbers and activity perspective, NFTs actually look great. Um, Obviously, the prices and volume, so maybe not kept up with with 2021, but um, independent of that.
2: Yeah, I think NFT holders are poorer, but. There's still a lot of them and they're still pretty active and they're still pretty animated about what they're doing. Um, But I think the envy of normies of the NFT world that has gone away. (laughs) That's done.
3: Uh, Actually actually another loser. I'll add the word normie. I think, I think, (laughs) I think, I think I I, I don't think it had a good year. Is it time to retire the word?
2: We'll bring it back in the next bull market. I think for now we'll, We'll put it in the pantry. We'll pull it out when we need it. Do you guys
3: agree? It kind of, it like started the year as this like, I'm better than you, like whatever, like asshole, like Dubai, Miami crypto person, like shtick. And like, by the end of the year, it's like, wow, don't you wish you were a normie?
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've felt that feeling quite a few times. All right, Tom, what is your biggest loser for 2022?
0: You know, again, I'm still feeling pretty good about my 2021 uh, pick of Bitcoin, where this year we saw real inflation, we saw a worse macro picture and Bitcoin, you know, just kind of traded like every other growth asset. And so the inflation resistance narrative is kind of dead. Um, and then, you know, in comparison, obviously, ETH had it had a great year uh, with, you know, issuance going negative for a brief period, merge completing successfully. But again, in the interest of, of picking something new, I had Ponzi's as a category overall. And I think what we saw this year, yes, there were many different independent collapses, but they all kind of had a similar shape to them, which were Kind of byproducts of like a zero interest rate environment, very pro-reflexivity, very pro-leverage and sort of, you know, when that momentum started to stall out, they all sort of fell. And if that could be a Luna, that could be an Axie, that could be a literal, you know, three arrows or FTX or whatever it is. But it feels like all the big losers this year had that in common where, uh, you know, when the gas starts to run out and the momentum starts to die, these things get hit the hardest. So um, I think it's good probably that these are no longer with us, but Overall, that's kind of how I see, um, you know, a lot of the big failure stories of of 2022.
2: This is actually exactly one of the things that I picked. I called it tokenomics, which I like, I think this is a terrible year for tokenomics. Anything that you wrote a Medium post about last year explaining the tokenomics, every single one of them got absolutely destroyed this year. So whether it's Luna, whether it's Axie, whether it's, you know, VE tokens, whether it's like all this DeFi 2.0 crazy recursive nonsense. Almost everything that had anything interesting about his tokenomics just got absolutely exploded. So I think the, the just even the term tokenomics, I I think might have to go in the pantry alongside Normie because it just it has not aged well as a term.
0: It's a little cringy. It's a little cringy now.
2: Yeah. So actually I, I um when when I talk to entrepreneurs or founders about tokenomics, at this point I tell them, like, don't even think about tokenomics like just don't say the word. Tokenomics is a distraction from Just build a good product that people want to use. And if you do that, then maybe you have a chance of building something valuable, but tokenomics won't get you there. Like there's, at this point, we basically don't have examples of when tokenomics actually created great products.
3: Tokenomics are a zero interest rate phenomenon. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I would actually equate
1: tokenomics to financial engineering, right? So Hmm. absent financial engineering, you know, companies on Wall Street have to be successful. Otherwise, they go bankrupt, and that's the end of the story, right? There's also examples. You know, look at the 1980s using debt, right? Look at you know the 1990s using new equity structures, right? There's examples of financial engineering complementing strong underlying businesses to be you know one and a half x successful or two x successful. But there has to be an underlying you know value and success driver there. Otherwise, you know, whether you call it financial engineering or tokenomics, that's not going to, you know, change the core. It's just going to put, you know, lipstick on a dead pig, right? Like, I do think there is a world, you know, maybe in the future where there's lots of successful crypto networks, crypto protocols, crypto things that augment their incredibly sound core with, you know, innovative token design, right? And I, I think that's an enhancer, when done correctly, but I think there has to be like a really strong foundation.
2: It's a good point. I think arguably the only real protocol with good tokenomics at this point is Ethereum itself. Almost everything else that you would admire for its token, uh, like its tokenomics, just has been an absolute dog. And usually it's some kind of cart before the horse thing where the tokenomics is the interesting part and the product kind of sucks. Now we, it's very clear that that's a huge anti-pattern, um, but very attractive in a zero interest rate environment.
3: The way I like to describe it is if you took steroids and you didn't work out, you're not getting jacked and that's that's how I describe it
2: <laughs> that is a perfect that is a perfect encapsulation so I had I had a double a double a double um, feature so my other big loser for the year last year I said the biggest winner was Kyle Samani, and this year he's also the biggest loser so Kyle Samani is the managing partner at multicoin Capital, which is a big Solana and FTX affiliated investment firm. They made huge bets on Solana, which did extremely, extraordinarily well last year. One of the best performing funds in venture history. This year gave a ton of it back. Uh, rode Solana down. We have you know public statements that they've made, or not public statements, it's just a leaked uh, statements to their own investors. They lost 10% of their uh, net assets on FTX in addition to owning FTT, uh, having invested into FTX equity and owning Solana, as well as a bunch of investments on top of Solana, almost all of which have gotten really destroyed this year. So I feel for the guy. I like Kyle. We've had him on the show. Uh, a great dude, but he has just gotten absolutely hammered this year and I and I and I feel for him. Um, I'd say alongside Kyle, I'd say Growth Investors.
3: You do to include Hash? Hash uh
2: they've Hash definitely got hit, but they were working on a much smaller base than what I think Multi like Multicoin was really just they were just, you know, champions of the universe at the end of last year. They they could do no wrong. And um, I think now this year, they've just taken a beating that uh, on a different scale than hash. Hash was, you know, they, they weren't that high up when I think they got really hit by Terra and everything that happened in that ecosystem.
3: I mean, it was still like $3 billion lost, right? Something like that. Like three, like they had like a Luna position yeah. that was like gigantic. Luna and Dios Right,
2: stuff. right. I mean, Multicoin had a big Sol- Solana position too, uh, plus FTX equity. Solana's not zero. Yeah, true, 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 true. The FTX equity is zero. Solana, not zero. Yeah, they they lost a lot as well. It might be a close tie. It might be close. The other, the other, Separately, I would say also growth investors as a category. When it comes to investors, growth investors just got absolutely shafted this year. I don't think there's any investors, any growth stage investors in crypto who have made money now. I'm pretty sure every single one is down very significantly. And of course, half of them put money into FTX. So it, it's been a bad year for growth.
3: The best thing about last year that I remember that I was very confused about was when people who are growth investors were like, oh, I, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start doing early stage, invest, early stage investments by trade, by basically investing in whatever FTX invests in. And I was like, wait, wait, wait. I thought you're supposed to be a growth stage investor. Why are you like copy trading seed stage investments from one of your growth stage investments? That was like. That was one of the crazy things of like December, 2021, that like, uh, you know, I don't think we're going to see it for a while. There's also the opposite seed stage
1: investors investing in late rounds and growth. Very rounds. true. And that was equally disastrous. So, you know, it goes both ways.
2: Yeah. The lesson overall is like stay in your lane, stick to what you're good at. Otherwise you're going to get hurt. And uh, in, a, in a bull market, Everything gets rewarded, right? It's like you're you're riding on a slip and slide and everyone's gonna make it to the water. In a bear market, you are like driving into oncoming traffic. And you'd better be you better know exactly where you're going and time all your turns because otherwise you are just gonna get wrecked. And that, that seems to be the story of investing this year. We've got some biggest losers. Let's move on to best mechanism. Okay. This is this ultimately is a podcast about crypto and, and crypto mechanisms. Last year, what we said was that the best mechanisms were Uni V3. Convex Finance plus Curve, the whole symbiotic ecosystem there. Ohm and ESD, which is empty set dollar. Those were our picks for best mechanism last year. Let's see what our updates are to those best mechanisms. Robert, what do you got best mechanism?
1: Well, I'm going to simultaneously award best mechanism and worst mechanism to the same recipient. Because this is a, a slightly abstract one. I'm going to award... MEV on the Ethereum blockchain, both best mechanism and worst mechanism. So, I think this year more than anything was a year of extreme normalization of MEV, of embedding it directly into the block manufacturing process with MEV boost. You know, the extreme success of Flashbots, and you know, there's starting to be a few other block builders. But MEV, I think this year, uh, reached its inflection point. And I don't think this is necessarily a good thing, but I think from the perspective of what mechanism has been wildly successful, has seen significant growth and almost a unilateral adoption, well, MEV, I think, you know, as a mechanism has won this year. Now, I don't think this is a good thing. You know, I think in some ways, you know, it, you know, runs completely counter to the interests of, you know, the users of the blockchain, Ethereum. And I think it's, you know, a little bit, ironic and perverse to see, you know, MEV essentially, you know, officially condoned, so to speak, because I don't think it runs along the long-term interests of the users of the blockchain. But it's definitely the most interesting and successful mechanism. In future years, we might say it was the least successful mechanism or that cannibalized user base or it had these negative externalities or whatever. But for the time being, this year, MEV. Yeah, that is a very good point.
2: I think since the merge, there's been so much more conversation about MEV outside of people who are sort of DeFi insiders and kind of understand the machinations of how MEV auctions and flashbots and all this stuff really works. Now it's impossible to not be aware of the politics of MEV. And that I think
3: is new. It was in Elizabeth Warren's proposed bill. You know, like... MEV, Mev got a mention in there about like malicious activity that needs to be stopped, like pretty directly. Um, oh, fascinating! I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know that. That's crazy.
2: Okay, so Mev, uh, Tarun, what is your vote? Best mechanism, twenty twenty two.
3: So last year, my mechanism, uh, I, I'll, I want to defend it a little bit because it actually did survive, which is the Ohm bomb. <laughs> Uh because Ohm didn't okay. go to zero like Luna. And most of the reason was the bonds actually locked people up for a long time, and you know, you they had the steady exit out of the main token instead of this like rush to the exit behavior. Now, the Ponzi staking coin shit that I'm not, I'm not going to try to defend that. But the own bond, I think, is actually a very is is like I think that will be over time like bond like mechanisms will somehow make it to DeFi. Uh, You know, there've been many attempts, some of them. Gave up, some didn't, whatever. But like, Drew,
2: this is a weird hill to die on, but okay.
3: Do I ever die on very normal hills? I, I <laughs> I'm not sure.
2: <laughs> that is true. That is true. You would only die on an extremely weird hill. That is very true. Yeah. Yeah. So are you doubling down? This is your best mechanism is still no, no, Oman's? No, no, no. no, no, no. Okay.
3: I, I, so I think there's, this year has been actually a year where it reminds me of 2018 where people went from, you know, like 2017, like high, you know, like all these crazy ideas, like X on blockchain or Y is a new blockchain to like, oh, like let's like invest in hard technology, like Starkware got founded then and stuff like that. And so I actually think the interesting thing is that there's a lot of new mechanisms that have not been tested that have come out theoretically this year that I think will be successful in next few years. And those are the ones I'd probably highlight of like things like eigenlayer, which, you know, like, you know, whether it's implemented by eigenlayer, whether it's implemented by someone else, the idea of restaking your locked assets to offer other services as a validator is going to be kind of a really big thing, especially in a world where there's a lot more ZK proof generation Uh, and I just think like this was a good year for like theoretical mechanism design and less on the apply, like the stuff in practice, like, yeah, like kind of like Robert said, like MEV is like kind of the only thing that got better, better in some efficiency sense.
2: That, that may be because theoretical designs are not marked to market, whereas everything else is. So <laughs> it, it looks good when there's no price on it.
3: I think it's actually like in a bull market, people do the like, Hey, let me copy pasta, like take something existing, tweak it a little bit, make put that out, right? And when things crash, people are like, Okay, I need to take a like much larger bet. And I feel like that those are the mechanisms that I think were good this year. I think all the ones implemented were people just trying to like re relive last year's hurrah but with high interest rates.
2: I generally agree with you, but I don't think that we actually entered that phase this year until relatively recently. I think most of this year, although prices were
3: declining. Post-LUNA. Like, the moment LUNA happened, it, like, it was quite fast. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, all the investors I knew who last year... Oh, this is another big loser in my mind. The phrase Web3. But, like, all the investors who are touting dog shit NFT stuff, which you know listeners of this show have have literally said the same thing to me about like they can't believe all these funds invest in this stuff the idea that like they all flipped the moment luna happened to try and be like oh we're gonna do hard tech again no more like random wallets or like some nft like hype thing and it was like such a fast flip from the investment side that it like also drew all these kind of like new mechanisms and so i like the luna thing was clearly a like Either LPs of all these funds got angry at them or the funds were like, oh shit, we can't like invest in dog shit NFTs anymore. I don't know what it was. There's was just this like huge transition. Like like June, July of this year, you just saw like the investment landscape changed like dramatically.
2: That That's totally true, that's totally true. But I, I do feel like after FTX, like after Luna, things felt like, okay, we're not in a bull market anymore, right? Like things are, we're, we've been kind of chastened by the realities of, hey, bad things can happen in, in crypto. But I think it's really after Three Arrows collapsed and then after FTX that it really felt like we were in a bear market. I think like Three Arrows was the feeling that, okay, not just did bad things happen, we're in a bear market now and like we kind of deserve it. Things aren't going to go back up anymore. And then uh, like the party's over, right? After Three Arrows felt like the party was over. Uh, Whereas more like Luna felt like somebody knocked over a vase and it was a very expensive vase and it's a big deal and like we're kind of in trouble, but like the music's still playing, right? After Three Errors, the music stopped. After FTX, it's like, oh, like one part of the house exploded. <laughs> like things are very, very bad. And that, the, the feeling, I, th- I do actually think that what you're describing, Tarun, this feeling that when entrepreneurs come in the space, it demands much more seriousness of them. I think that really started after FTX. And I think now when I talk to entrepreneurs, there is just no sense that anything cutesy is going to work in crypto anymore. That, th- I, I feel like there was a big tonal shift in the way that entrepreneurs view starting a startup in, in crypto.
3: Yeah, I mean, I don't see any more puff posts and I see all these funds hiring cryptographers instead of like celebrities. So like you can, there's like such a gigantic change. I mean, there's one fund I'm talking about in particular, which is pretty obvious who that is for the, for that. Like, you know, they, they like literally flip from like celebrity endorsement, like people to like, oh, we're hiring a ton of cryptographers. Like, you know, that has literally started in June. It was, it was like such a, like the, the three arrows Luna thing was a complete shift to, to the way people's behavior, behavior was. And I think that's one of the reasons I'm very negative on NFTs for quite a while. Cause I, I don't think any of these like larger players are going to come back for a while.
2: Okay. Tom, what do you got for best mechanism of 2022?
0: This one's maybe a little esoteric, but, uh, I went with liquidity mining on Blur. Blur, for those that don't know, is the NFT aggregator. It's an NFT aggregator. And there's sort of been this, this thing where basically last year OpenSea really blew up and everyone saw how much money they were making. And now there have been, they basically have this target on their back. And there have been a lot of competitors that have come out trying to take down OpenSea, um, like a LuxRare or an X2Y2. And they always you know, launched OpenSea, but with a token. And the idea was that, well, we can use the token to incentivize people to use our platform. And then maybe we can use that to overtake OpenSea. And they were always so terribly designed. There were always some like permutation of trade mining, which we know has all these issues. And that's why you see these stories coming out about NFT wash trading. And you see these tokens kind of just getting farmed and dumb. It's like, it's like so obvious. I feel like if you're in the space that like these, you know, types of token incentives don't work um, if you're just incentivizing people to wash trade. Blur was really like one of the first that came out, well, A, it had a, had a you know great product. Um, B, it was an aggregator on day one. So even you know the day one experience without needing supplemental liquidity is gonna be superior just to showing up to some random exchange. But three, they actually incentivize people to place bids near the floor. And as you get compensated more, the closer your bid is to the floor. Um, and so it, it creates this sort of uh, uh, incentive to provide liquidity, which is like what every NFT exchange or every exchange period sort of lives and dies on. And so that's why you've seen I think them be so successful, not just on, on a volume perspective, but more importantly, from a user perspective, from a depth of liquidity perspective, they, I think, had a very clear line on sight on how to take on the giant in the room, which is OpenSea. Um, and so far, it seems to be paying off pretty well. So that's my number one you know, uh, mechanism, I think, for, for 2022 is a blur going after uh, this big prize
2: yeah great pick has been really impressive to see the growth of blur just in the last couple of months even at a time when nft volumes are in the toilet and it doesn't seem like there's a lot of it's very difficult for sharps to grow in an environment where things are trending downward but blur is one of those really rare exceptions that has managed to be one of the breakout growth stories at a time when not much is growing
3: i mean it seems like the year of the aggregator in general right like nft volume and aggregator seems to have like basically killed the main exchanges and the main exchanges have to either build or buy their own.
0: Yeah, it's wild to me how many people I've spoken with who are starting or pivoting to an NFT aggregator. I think it's it's kind of those memetic things where it's people see something working and then they all try to, you know, copy paste it even if it doesn't really make sense for them or they don't have any unique insights. So, also cool to see Blur kind of poke through the aggregator space with um, you know, a fresh product.
2: Well, what I got my pick for best mechanism of 2022 was Tornado Cash. So Tornado Cash has had obviously a rocky year. Uh, it was sanctioned by OFAC uh, earlier in the summer. It, it ended up, they ended up uh, basically, I mean, one, one of the uh, founders and developers of Tornado Cash, Alexey Pertsev, is still being held uh, in detention in Amsterdam without charges being brought against him uh, just for the act of writing code. However, the whole idea of Tornado Cash was that it was a permissionless decentralized way to achieve privacy on chain. And guess what? It still works. People are still using tornado cash. We talk a lot in crypto about the idea that your protocol should work without human intervention. Well, guess what the only protocol or one of the few protocols that I know of that actually answers to that name because it was forced to is tornado cash. You can still use Tornado Cash. You still don't need anyone's permission. You don't need any human beings to help you. Um, it's all permissionless code on the blockchain, and it just works. And if anything, it's a testament to the power of what they built. Now, again, not not to endorse it or to say that good actors or bad actors use Tornado Cash. Obviously, many bad actors do, and you should not use it because it's you know if you're subject to U.S. sanctions, you should not use Tornado Cash. But to me, I think best mechanism of the year is Tornado Cash. It's it's a privacy protocol that works. Without any human intervention, and it's proven it multiple times over.
0: Yeah, that's a great pick. There's a uh, Twitter account that tweets out the uh, tornado cash volume uh, every day, and you know, occasionally show up in my feed. And I'm always surprised. It's always like a few hundred k, you know, kind of low mills, and it's like, yeah, it's still going. People are still using it, um, you know, even without, uh, you know, even with the main site being down and everything that's happened to the devs and everything. So.
3: Yeah, I think uh, my my personal measurement of like whether it's a, a net direction that the IQ of Bitcoin Maxis is tending in is like their tornado cash posts, because like they'll all be like, oh, it represents like Ethereum censorship and whatever. And they're like, wait a minute, but you still see transactions going through like, oh, like it's not censorship resistant. Like this is the most censorship resistant thing in Ethereum. What, what are you talking about? <laughs> like it, it, everyone that's tried to throw the book at it, it's still
0: running totally totally on top of uh all the MEV booster they are trying to censor it and yet you can still get a tornado cash transaction mined within like you know a few minutes so
3: yeah there's a lot of like mac bitcoin maxi cope because i feel like they like like tornado cash philosophically and they're like oh we like uh ethereum censoring it ethereum sucks because like it's not working (laughs) and there's a lot of like very complicated rube goldberg logic machines going on that don't make any sense
2: all right, guys. Let's move on to biggest surprise. So, biggest surprise again. A year full of many surprises. It's going to be it's going to be a tough choice. But here's what we said for 2021. 2021, we said the biggest surprise was one the rise of NFTs, uh, and you know concurrently the the flipping of Bored Ape Yacht Club over uh, CryptoPunks. Uh, we also said uh, Luna, the the success of the Luna burn, as one of the biggest surprises. Uh, and the last one was. The rise of a one-bip pools on Uniswap, V3. Those were our picks for the biggest surprises of 2021. 2022, Robert, what do you got? Biggest surprise.
1: Well, I'll preface by saying that Tom sort of scooped me a little bit earlier in this show, but I'm awarding the biggest surprise to, one, inflation exceeding the expectations of the market in general, leading to higher interest rates than the market expected, both in the US and globally. But three, and this is really the root of the surprise, the assets like Bitcoin that had been, you know, discussed for years as inflation hedges, seeing their first really inflationary environment, not rising to the occasion. So this was a surprise to me because, you know, the narrative that had been built up for the last decade plus was that you know, oh, wait for inflation. That's when you're really going to see Bitcoin shine. That's really when you're going to see, you know, non-correlated assets across the board, you know, shine relative to traditional asset classes. And, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to keep on beating a bearish drum here, but, you know, Bitcoin in particular, as well as pretty much every asset class did not benefit from inflation. And this was, you know, a direct counter argument to one of the loudest narratives of the past few years. It's hard to see what other narratives get, you know, used for assets like Bitcoin in the absence of, you know, it's an inflation hedge. <laughs> now, this has been in a lot of ways disproven, but the big surprise to me was inflation, how fast it grew, how fast it exceeded anyone or the market's expectations and the performance of asset classes that we've been waiting really 12 years to see how they would perform um, in the face of it, seeing them perform for the first time.
2: Yeah. I mean, this has been a, as a professional investor, I'm always thinking to myself, um, what are my LPs paying me to do? And one of the things that I've always believed is that, look, we're not macro investors. Our LPs don't think we're macro investors. They don't think that we're qualified to be able to opine on the direction that macro is going. But this is the one year when no matter what, asset class you're investing in, you are a macro investor because the higher order bit for everything this year has been macro. And so um, it's been really challenging, but also an incredible education just to see how many people have been able to get the same things wrong and how much it ended up massively impacting what your performance was, how you did as an investor, no matter what you were trading or no matter what you were investing into, just by being able to get some very basic big questions right. For sure. Hmm. Tarun, what do you got? Biggest surprise of 2022?
3: It's actually quite hard because there's like way too many options.
2: <laughs> okay, just pick one.
3: My main surprise, my number one surprise is that that Arbitrum really like stole DeFi away from every other L2 this year. Like if you just mm-hmm. look at like the net volume of DeFi on Arbitrum, it's like clearly trouncing everyone. Like like Polygon, obviously has tons of activity, but it's actually way more than the NFT side now. Like the DeFi side is shrinking quite a bit uh optimism is sort of like in this weird like they have like weird liquidity mining grant rewards things that like don't seem it's like kind of not pushing the needle but but gmx and a couple other places on on arbitrum seem to just like have it's not that i guess i'm surprised that there is a dominant l2 DeFi wise as much as i'm just surprised that like arbitrum has done it with like no incentives what do you attribute that to so I think it does have some of the mo- most reliable L2 infrastructure uh, in terms of you know like stuff that makes it easy to develop on. So like for instance like Bedrock, the new Optimism um, upgrade is going is actually going to move towards something that Optimism that Arbitrum did, which made it very easy to predict how like when your transaction is executed within a block, whether you measure things in block time or real time, and like. There's some like very tiny nuances there, but one kind of crazy thing that happened was the way optimism counted blocks messed up certain yield farming programs because some of them use timestamps incorrectly and basically like the farming rewards ran out early. And so there's, there was a, there's a oh, lot of like, very interesting. interesting, like nuanced stuff like that. that Wait, I so think they, like, they
2: use like the internal blocks within Optimism rather than using like the blocks on Ethereum or what, what was the difference?
3: It, it was sort of that, but there's also this notion of like how, how they're producing, like, are they produced blocks like drawn from like this, like Poisson distribution of fixed time, or are they actually like a much wider oh, I see. distribution and like that change ah. that actually changed some of the like, uh, the ways people had Oh,
2: because they were using blocks to approximate time
3: yes exactly exactly i see i see i see okay yeah yeah okay. i mean this is all the stuff like it's not like people didn't know this would stuff would happen but i think Arbitrum actually tried to be very consistent with ethereum and i think a lot of the other l2s were much more loose and and and, and it actually i think it's like one of the interesting things is that like farming contracts worked better on Arbitrum, like for a while and like now everyone realizes that and they're going to upgrade and change stuff but their their developer friendliness in certain ways seem to to win people over and i think for polygon i think the difference is like polygon's just been focused on nfts like they've been killing it, at it right they like basically have like taken all of solana's nft st- stuff like in the last you know six months they've like slowly eaten everything so i think it's just interesting though that Arbitrum became the DeFi place right like i, I don't know if i could have predicted that at all at the beginning of the year it would i would have just like rolled a three-sided dice and said, like, it's Arbitrum optimism or or Polygon."
1: Well, one of the things you see anecdotally or hear anecdotally from users right now is that there's a lot of users on Arbitrum because within the community, there's still a lot of expectation that Arbitrum is going to release a token and it's going to be retroactive towards its users, whether or not that's, you know, reality or hope or rumor. You know, I think a lot of the activity is, you know, preemptively designed to target that. A lot of the other L2s at this point, you know, all have tokens. <laughs> Arbitrum is sort of a last man standing of a blockchain that doesn't. And so it's possible that a lot of the usage there is just really designed to try to capture a token if and when it doesn't. Yeah, use.
2: I wanted to say that this proves my tokenomics point, but it kind of doesn't because of retroactive airdrops. Retroactive airdrops are this kind of like reverse causation that kind of muddy the waters of like what's actually happening there. Part of it is certainly that like, yes, Arbitrum is not, you know, pumping out liquidity rewards because it's just, they built a good mousetrap and people like the mousetrap. But part of it is like, yeah, to Robert to your point, once they actually do have a token and whatever airdrop they will do is done, then you can say, cool, here's like real, actual, completely organic usage. And unfortunately we no longer can do clean AB tests because of retroactive airdrops
3: i i agree but i also think it's interesting that like polygon completely won the nft war and and Arbitrum. I, there was a time where Arbitrum was, was actually the highest l2 nft volume probably like at the beginning of this year and it completely lost that right it even lost like the reddit thing started there but then moved to polygon do you remember like it, it was actually in a nova chain yeah. So my point is it is interesting that the users have segmented and some of it actually does seem to be like UX and quality. Like obviously not all of it. Like clearly a lot of it's economic incentive described. But it does seem like they 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 found certain things that to developers and users, people like
2: I I suspect that a lot of it for Polygon too is that actually for onboarding new users, the UX of a new L one is actually a lot simpler than the UX of an L two right? You, and L2 implies that, okay, it's Ether, but it's not Ether on Ethereum. If you have Ether on Ethereum, you're in the wrong place. You've got to like point your lasers at the right thing, you know, manage your RPC and all this stuff. Whereas for for Matic, it's just like, if you have Ether, you're in the wrong place. Ether is the wrong thing to buy. You don't need Ether. You need Matic. Go on your exchange, buy Matic. That's the thing you want. You know, so it's, it's I, I, I assume, I mean, not only one, they have the network effect of just having a ton of users already uh, compared to what Arbitrum has in terms of, you know, just monthly or daily actives, but also just like UX wise, if you're Reddit and you are going to have hundreds of thousands of people touching this blockchain, if you lose 10% of them, because they don't understand what a layer two is, because, oh, it's on Ethereum. Arbitrum is on Ethereum. So therefore, okay, I've moved my money onto Ethereum. If even 10% of people make that mistake or 5% of people, then it's just not worth it because the underlying, the underlying chain doesn't really matter to you that much. So much as just, hey, I need an open OpenSea and I need, you know, a, a chain that can beat super low fees. So anyway, this is a theory. I don't know if this is true, but that, that's my assumption of...
3: Yeah, I still still would say if I look back at January, I wouldn't have necessarily predicted that they would be the DeFi chain right now.
2: Okay. Tom, what do you have? Biggest surprise 2022?
0: Yeah, maybe a bit broad, but uh, I have usage durability. There's, you know, sort of this phrase that, you know, the map is not the territory. And I think in crypto, it's like, the price is not the product. And I think, you know, in my mind, a lot of kind of DeFi, you know, obviously exists in part to offer leverage. Um, And so naturally it's sort of gotten hit in terms of overall TVL or or usage by sort of this this wind down of these different macro market. But I think if you sort of peek under the hood, a lot of parts of crypto actually look pretty fantastic from a usage perspective. Um, Like we were talking about NFT mints earlier. NFT mints are still at 50% of all-time highs. Um, User numbers are still at 50% of all-time highs. Even DeFi, um, yeah, you know, in, in... some DEXs, maybe you know volume is down, but user, user numbers are actually looking pretty darn good, and I think that's true in these you know different areas of, of outperformance like the Reddit NFT um, example, uh, you know four million people minted their their Reddit avatar, or uh, with Tyler Hobbs, generative art artist, his QQL mint, minted out like you know seventeen million dollars, like, And that was like two months ago, which was supposed to be sort of you near know, the middle of this NFT winter, and so. There are all these different areas where if you sort of look under the hood, there's actually like pretty interesting activity going on. People are still really excited and you know, the numbers don't really lie, but you kind of have to go go find those. So I, I think in my mind, $200,000, eight pictures was maybe you know, partially a, a macro byproduct, but there are still a lot of people out there who are excited about these things. And so um, I think in DeFi, in, in NFTs, in other areas of crypto, there's still a lot of usage, even despite the price drawdowns.
2: I'm pretty sure the line "the price is the product" was coined by Kyle Samani last year. So, yeah, I think it is. I think it is fitting that that this is the this is the year of the dissolution of that of that meme. So, yeah, no, well, well called out. So, my biggest surprise, and by the way, I just want to point out for the audience, you can tell we're all being cute and we're all dancing around like the actual biggest surprises. But whatever, I'll continue in the theme of being cute.
3: Well, because we already said them. We kind of already said <laughs> yeah. that. We already said that. Because
2: like the biggest losers are the- Yeah, exactly. Okay, so I just, but I just want to say that in case we don't actually say it. So if, in my case, the biggest surprise I would say was the death of all the lenders. So it doesn't surprise me that lenders died, right? Like, okay, of course, prices go down. Some people were leveraged. Some people made bad loans. They died. It turns out every fucking lender in the industry died. Every single one of them. It, we basically had a great financial crisis level extinction event. For every single lender, that was surprising to me. Basically, nobody has made money in lending since inception, which is really just mind-boggling to me. You would think that in a cycle there would be some people who sort of you know went sort of went too far toward the tide and ended up getting carried away when the tide increased. But the people who were closer to shore would be okay, and like there would be some people who are like, oh, I had better risk management. I did this, I did that, and that's why you know I didn't do what those crazy people did. Doesn't matter what you did. Every almost everybody died from this generation of lenders. And I would not, even if you told me that prices in crypto would have drawn down, you know, 50% plus in a single year, I would assume like, well, you know, BlockFi is going to be screwed, but like other people will be fine. Uh, but it turns out, no, every single lender died. And so anybody who's building a thesis last year about, well, I'm going to underwrite this lender because they're better than the other. Yeah, okay, BlockFi is crazy. Celsius is crazy. But these guys are going to be fine. Nope, the entire category all got destroyed this year.
3: I do remember talking to some people who were, investing in BlockFi like last few rounds and I had just been like, oh like what's your thesis? Like why do you think they're gonna be really great? People always said the same thing for all of these mega lender rounds, like Celsius BlockFi, like not Amber, the, the person Amber used, Babel, like stuff like that. I, I I just like people would always basically say the following. They yeah, they have these like really great borrowers who are market makers. <laughs> like everyone said the same thing about all the lenders. So, like, maybe this is just, like, you know, the cycle of life.
2: It seems so. It seems so. And until, I mean, there's a lot of lessons about, like, why did why, why fundamentally, or what could you have arrived at to know that the entire category was just not underwritable? And I think a large part of it comes from the fact that, so lending on the whole made a lot of money last year, right? So, you know, people made, um, in aggregate, you know, in, in the billions last year. Uh, obviously, it was a crazy year for crypto leverage, period, and so... A lot of that was just end up getting recycled as crypto leverage. But the, the difference between lending, so there are some, you know, very successful lending companies in you know, web two, traditional startups, uh, but most of them have some kind of innovation and the innovation might be, you know, some like, you know, a point of sale integration, like buy not pay later. It might be, you know, some clever underwriting or being able to like, you know, model out exactly what your repayment schedule is going to be or something like that. Nobody in crypto had All
3: that. of these people had bad 2023. They, they all did, they all did. They all did.
2: But they didn't die, right? They didn't die. The they record. Didn't die. It was that was a lot of just repricing due to rates, right? So like the the attractiveness of uh, these lending, uh, you know, the, basically being able to get high risk debt just on, on the whole got destroyed because of rates going up, right? So like that's ultimately what a lot of these lenders were really doing was packaging up high risk borrowers. But they didn't die. Everyone in crypto died. And I think part of the reason why that is, is that ultimately the lenders in crypto were competing on taking risk because there was no way to compete on technology. Nobody had any better technology. There was no actual innovation. Normally when VCs back a a sector, they do so because the person who has the better, you know, structural advantage is going to win. The person who has better technology, who has better vertical integration, who has better execution, whatever, they're the person who's going to win. And venture capital is in the business of finding that one person, giving them lots, lots of money and achieving the outside success. But if there's no vector for uh, com- competition besides risk, besides just taking more risk, then basically every single person that is venture-backable takes a bunch of risks. And as soon as the tide increases, they all drown together. And that's basically what happened. And so I think that for me, that's a big lesson about just what it looks like to find a category, even if it's making money, that actually has a v- the, the, the properties of venture. The properties of venture should be that as a company gets bigger, it becomes more robust, not less robust. And that's, that seems to be what happened to the lenders, that as lenders try to get bigger, they became less and less robust. In, in traditional uh, finance, like you know, lending is not a venture-type business. It's something that, you know, like obviously lending is a big business, it's massive, but it's not the kind of thing that, you know, small players grow overnight through some kind of magic growth hack or structural advantage and then end up becoming these big incumbents. It's the opposite. It's a very slow-moving industry with very entrenched players. Um, and so that...
3: Well, I, 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 I would one thing I would dispute about that characterization is that a lot of, like, edge lending that requires, like, either novel underwriting standards or, like, packaging up loans in some weird way, like, buy now, pay later is a good example, or, like, type all these, like, invoice factoring type of things. Like, they were venture capital because they had some sort of, like, there's this outsized premium that like that market is going to grow like, and like the current users are just small. Right. But I think
2: that that Um, also points to real innovation, right? It's like understanding there's a class of users that nobody else understands how to underwrite and they have some technological way to underwrite them in real time or, at a much faster sales cycle than anybody else can, right? That's both buy now, pay later, and you,
3: in spite, in spite of c- certain VCs asking me to stop calling VCs dumb on the show.
2: <laughs> I, uh, Wait, who asked you to stop I, calling I, dumb? I
3: will say that when it, I'm not telling you, but I, I, I got <laughs> you have to
2: call them out. What are you talking about?
3: <laughs> I, I'm not calling them out. I'm just going to let them hear that I said that, so they know. uh i think i think the problem is vcs just took the model of like the pipes of the world like oh let's Hmm. translate it to this like edge asset that we don't understand but people are securitizing in some way and oh like it seems to be growing like like i i I can kind of see like the growth investor story for this because they're just like what's the spreadsheet of the numbers and it's not really about the technology like that is sort of the difference between like late stage growth investors and seed investors right like the if you're investing in growth stuff, you're not actually underwriting the technology anymore. At some point, you you might you might be if it's like SpaceX, but like most fintech stuff, it's not, right? Like, and so I, I think like the 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 there's a sense in which like, calling it not venture investable is not totally true, but it is true that the growth investors maybe were not so sophisticated, and you know I'm not going to call venture investors dumb, so I'm just going to say that. I'll leave it at that. I think one of the things that makes it interesting from a venture perspective is that at a hypothetical
1: level, lending is a business that could require a lot of capital for something that is mostly just software and a little bit of people. And I think, you know, venture investors get excited about businesses that could require $5 billion just because, you know... That's something that you can deploy assets and capital into at scale, unlike most other businesses in our space um, or, you know, in finance in general. Like it's one of these things that could soak up just huge amounts of capital given the right conditions. And, you know, it gets better as it gets bigger because, you know, when it's small, it's like, oh, why would we bet on this? Like, you know, what's the odds is making any sense as it gets bigger? I, I think people's eyes widen when they see how much capital it could, you know, ask to soak up. And that's what makes it interesting from a business perspective, in a way that, you know, we're building this protocol or we're building a new blockchain, like it's very different.
2: I think that was true in a in a bull market when there was tons and tons of money and it, that money was trying to find a home, right? So I think it was very true last year. This year, I think many fewer people are thinking of businesses in that context. And I think this is exactly where it, in the, the counter analogy, of course, is that, you know, BlockFi had a huge employee base. All these lenders had tons and tons of bodies, Right. Whereas, you know, Robert, to, to your point about Compound, Compound, Ave, they don't need employees. They just kind of run their super capital light. That is actually traditionally what VCs like. VCs like the idea that with a small amount of principal investment, you can build something really big. That's the advantage of software businesses is that they don't scale through people, they scale through software. So, and, and DeFi is the apotheosis of that. And so I think the, the regular lenders we're seeing were not- nice. Yes,
1: I, I will take this opportunity. Yes, I will take this opportunity to say that DeFi is better than the old way of doing business with tons of people and spreadsheets and like making up decisions on the fly and choosing who to lend to based on how much they bro out with you or tweet good tweets. You know, DeFi is vastly superior to all of these businesses that have failed in almost every way. And there's a reason why DeFi has performed exceptionally this year in terms of the resilience and the smoothness of their operating versus these CFI. And the
2: fact that DeFi does not trust your self-certified balance sheet, it checks. Like, you got to put the collateral in the fucking contract. And so that...
1: uh Yes, it's very hard
3: to scam a smart contract. It's very easy to scam a human at a lender. Speaking of that, I'm ready for our last category because this ties into my best meme. Of
2: my okay, let's move on to best memes. So just as a reminder, so last year, what we chose as the best memes of 2021 were... The term Web three, Dog coins, Grimes tweeting. What was it? What was it, the actual tweet? It doesn't exist anymore. Three 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 three. Oh oh. Okay, you're right. And then uh, last was SBF's shoes when he went to Congress. Those are what we chose as the best memes of Oof. last year.
0: Uh, SBF's shoes. <laughs> oh I'm like forgot about that.
3: <laughs> He's
2: gonna be wearing very different shoes this year. I saw
0: a pretty. Uh, well, I saw a pretty morbid tweet recently where it's him walking around without laces, um, because obviously when you go to jail, they take your shoelaces from you. And so it's a, you know, this the shoelace meme, but in a very different light.
2: All right, that got heavy. Uh, Robert, you want to go first? Best meme of 2022?
1: I'm going to go literal, and I'm not going to go with like a big metaphorical meme concept. I'm going to describe the best one JPEG meme that I saw all year in its simplicity and wonderfulness. If everyone's familiar with the, Low-wit, mid-wit, high-wit, you know, IQ bell chart meme. Um, Historically, this is used to indicate that the low IQ and the high IQ generally agree on something. It's the mid-wits that disagree and they're wrong and they're silly. But the meme that I saw this year was the low-wits saying, it was, you know, I got wrecked on Terra. You know, the mid-wits were saying, I got wrecked on Celsius, and the high-wit, you know, saying, I got wrecked on FTX. And you know I, I thought it like perfectly encapsulated this year in that, you know, there wasn't an outlier. It wasn't like the midwits are wrong and the low IQ and the high IQ like are both completely correct in their own opposite ways. This year everybody was in alignment and it was just the flavor of what attracted them, uh, like moths of the flame to their demise. So for the low low IQ it was generally Terra. You know, for the midwits it was generally c lenders, and for the high IQ it's you know, it was like market makers and traders and people who had assets still on FTX when it, you know, went under. So that was my best meme this year that I saw. You know, I tried to like it and retweet it and stuff, but it wasn't a concept, just a literal JPEG. You might think no, I love buy. that.
2: Bear markets are the most democratic because everybody gets shafted, in, but in a different way, in a way suited to your social status. You will, they will find a way to destroy you one way or another, no matter who you are. All right, Tarun, you're you're up. You were um, you were giving us a a little bit of a teaser about your uh, meme. What is your best meme for
3: 2022? Proof of reserve, <laughs> uh, which is you know it's it's kind of been a very stupid meme where like every exchange is like shooting themselves in the foot to be worse at getting audits that claim they have enough assets to withdraw post FTX. Mainly because you can't see liabilities and you can't see the chains of liabilities. And when you're talking about defect contracts, where you can see the entire liability chain, or or hopefully in the future, where it's like you can't see the liabilities, but I can give you see proof that like all the liabilities are correct, while still giving some some privacy to to the user, it, it is just like so superior in this case that it's actually like reading some of these audits is like painful. It's like oh yes, we attest that like these wallets are at, binance like signed signed sent us a signed signature from these things hold on, hold on. but actually we can't tell you anything about the methodology outside of exactly and not just binance i'm not just thinking about binance. kraken's audit was dog shit like bitmex was dog shit all of these things are like okay they're fine but like they're really a dog in. pony but doesn't, show doesn't doesn't
2: kraken okay hold on i think there's like such a massive chasm between what binance did and what kraken is doing
3: but even these Merkel personal reserves things are not very good when it's like an exchange that's actually quite complex of like what its liabilities are. Maybe the cash flows shown in those personal reserves come from outstanding sure, loans. Sure,
2: sure, sure. But doesn't Kraken also have like an audited statement saying that like these are our liabilities?
3: The If I remember correctly, the only exchange that a big four... I could be wrong about this. Maybe Kraken has this now, but like last time I looked, was it was Coinbase? Like they're the only one who's convinced. Like a big four. I can believe that.
2: I can believe that. I don't. I don't know if it was a big four auditor. That was what I heard. I'm all speaking with hearsay. I'm not an
3: authority on this. No, no. And I think I think Bitmax and Kraken have been trying to do this. Like, hey, we're going to do Merkle proof of whatever. But that doesn't tell you that much, right? These entities could have like, you know, 500 sub entities, like they all do in reality. Like like FTX, where it's like, oh, like this thing is minus fifty billion dollars, thing plus fifty point oh one billion dollars, and like you don't you know you don't see the minus, you only see the plus, and you're like, oh, okay, great, it's working. So like I, I I just like I just think like we, you know, I I I'm happy people are doing it. I think it's a dumb meme personally. I think you should have the liabilities represented and understood in the way that I does, and it's just cleaner, right? Like it. it you can believe the audit. I
1: agree with Tarun because I think this meme is counterproductive in that if people get complacent and say, Oh my God, we solved it. We're just gonna use these exchanges that do, you know, the proof of reserves in this way, and then later they get scammed even more, like it's gonna be problematic. And I just think it like it creates an extra layer of complacency as the reaction to FTX, even though it's probably not the objectively correct way of going about it, you know, the low wit and the mid wit are going to get confused and convinced by these That's the. It's a concern,
2: but like, you can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, right? Like this is way better than what we had before, which was absolutely nothing. And if you cannot generate even a like slightly convincing proof of reserves, that is a very good signal to no matter what wit you are, that, Hey, something is probably wrong at this exchange, right? Like what we want to avoid is another FTX. FTX could not have even done anything remotely like a proof of reserves. Now, can, can an insolvent exchange fake a proof of reserves? Yes. As the same way that an insolvent company can also fake an audit, right? As, as we learned, some of the great financial frauds of the past. The point is to make this stuff harder, not to make it impossible. It'd be great to make it impossible, but we don't have a tool that does that.
3: Quadriga, I just looked this up. Quadriga had an audit before, uh, like by a reputable Canadian firm before before uh, they went under. So,
2: well, but that's not proof of reserves, right?
3: But the, I mean, their auditor claimed to have done it because it was like for doing a listing on the Canadian stock exchange. So, I, these things are like kind of like everyone wants like the like the like feel good thing. It's like yeah.
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's my point. It's like look, it's not perfect. Nobody's claiming that proof of reserves is perfect, but it's clearly better than not having anything. Otherwise, like, what's the alternative?
3: I agree. I'm just saying it's a a meme that came out of this FTX fear that I I think will probably be net negative. Mm. Like, just don't. I just don't see it being a positive meme in the long run. All right. This is nothing against any of the exchange owners. You kind of have a. You're in a rock and hard place. It's kind of like hard. You're either showing everyone like everything you of all your entities on right, and it's like it's not. It's not. I don't envy their job doing this. I'm just pointing out that like it's just, it, it's a very big meme right now, yeah, right? Like true. everyone is like constantly
0: talking about it.
2: Yeah, even the SEC is unhappy about it. So they they are uh, cool. All right, Tom, what do you have for best meme of 2022?
0: Mine is also not a literal JPEG, but I have Miladies. Miladies went through a rise and a fall and a rise again. And I feel like they have this sort of, you know, anti-cyclical nature to sort of the ethos of what they represent. And I think in my mind, they've also kind of, branch outside of crypto, which is actually like the thing that has taken them into best meme status for me, where you see people in like the effective accelerationist movement and like other random AGI people are super into Miladies. And so in my mind, like it's, again, when I of talking about the price is not the product, this is sort of in that bucket of like, yeah, the price is not done super well. You know, yeah, it's it's not a, a big I think Miladies have done well, actually, this year. As a, I guess relative, it's it's not you know a big mainstream you know NFT like CryptoPunks or whatever, but it's in in the sense of cultivating an online community and sort of having a different tack to what the rest of crypto is doing. I uh, I give Miladies my best. I've opinion.
2: heard that one of the commonalities among a lot of Miladies holders is that there's a very high density of convicts among people who hold Maladies. Have you observed this to be true? <laughs> convicts,
0: of convicts? people who've
2: been to jail or prison.
0: I've never heard. that. One of the first things Scrawley did no, when he got I, out was. I don't think it's just Mlady, I don't think it's so. just
2: Scrawley. Apparently, there there are others. This is like a thing.
3: I don't know. This is hearsay. Okay, Milady. If, if any Chopping Block listener who is a Milady holder who who disagrees with Hasib needs to go like tweet at him right <laughs> right when you're listening. <laughs> yeah, Hasib just I, called to me. A clear,
2: to be clear, I said a higher than normal density. That could still be a very low number. I don't know. There's ten thousand of them, right? So you know, it. it I don't know. Good, good, good choice, Tom. So myself for best meme, I guess I took this fairly literally. I thought Gabriel Haynes was probably the best meme of 2022. I will never forget that iconic video of him like walking around and like in front of a country road with his shirt off and a machete. Basically the day after FTX was collapsing, he was like the one thing that I could show my wife that like, look, I can't explain to you what's really going on, but you should watch this guy. This guy will explain it better than I can. I think just having a little bit of insanity amplification at a time of just like otherworldly insanity really helped me.
0: Yeah. He's a vibe. vibe. Yeah. (laughs) Cool.
2: All
3: right. But honestly, the entertainment you need in a dark.
2: Definitely. Definitely. He's doing God's work. Okay. So predictions for 2023. So we made a number of predictions last year. There was a little bit too much detail from all of us for me to, for me to aggregate them. Uh, But let's just really quickly aggregate up. What are our predictions for next year. It's been a rough year. Hopefully there's some, you know, some some light to look forward to in 2023. Robert, what do you got predictions for next year?
1: So my prediction for next year is that developer activity sort of re-centers around Ethereum. In you know, the last couple of years, we've seen extreme fragmentation of developer activity spreading out to a lot of competing L1s and L2s. To your earlier point about the EVM, you know, having its moment you know, the EVM was a format and it actually made it really easy for alternative L1s using the EVM to capture applications and developers. And I think 2023 is, you know, the real start of the reversal of that. I think, you know, you're not going to see people trying to launch another EVM clone. I think, you know, as, you know, the price of Ether is low and gas costs are low, I think like a lot of activity is going to return to core L1 Ethereum. I think, you know, we're going to see it be more of a, you know, composable ecosystem for applications again. Um, one of the trends from the last you know year or two has been, there hasn't been a lot of composability between applications because everyone's just building their own application in a silo and they didn't really care what else was being built in their ecosystem because they could just jump to an all L1, <laughs> you know, and just like start from scratch. But I think I think 2023 is going to be a year where we start to see a network effect grow, for developers and people start to re-embrace the composability of a lot of development activity being in one place. Um, So that's my prediction. I could be completely wrong, but I think it's a year of composability.
2: Okay. So the inverse of the reversal of the fragmentation we've seen this year. Uh, Tarun, what's your prediction for 2023?
3: I predict we will get our first, maybe consumer is the wrong word, but average user ZK application. I'm not sure if it will be like some you know, big DeFi thing, or whether it'll be NFTs, I'm I not willing to make that bet. But if you just look at the number of people who are downloading, starring, and forking CIRCOM, which is one of the main uh, ZK tool chains for building provers and, and building circuits. Admittedly, it's extremely primitive. It's like, you know, uh, a bug I ran into, which someone else told me about, so I was trying to reproduce it, is is like, you know, you can do a for loop to 99 elements, but you can't to 100. <laughs> in, in a circuit like there's just, like tons of weird stupid limitations that like have to do with like how
2: wait it's base 10
3: that's not that it has to do with like the circuit side like they do only use a certain amount of memory that stores the circuit and this that amount of memory happens to be 100 gates so it's some random hmm. amount. Of it, it's it's annoying not worth discussing i kind of think like people are experimenting with writing zk circuits in a way that does feel a lot like smart contracts whether it's in Starkware and it's Cairo and it's like, you know, going that that direction, whether it's people writing custom circuits for doing things like bridging or whether it's sort of people building games uh, that take advantage of, of ZK elements. I, I, I think like we're going to finally find one application this year. It's not going to be what we expect. It's going to be a little bit like Uniswap where it like looks totally different or dumb or something. Like, it's going to have some affectation to it that's going to make you think like, who cares? Like why is the, and, and like, I,
2: does, does DYDX count? Are you talking about like just an application built in a way that's provable?
3: An application that takes advantage of the verifiability and like incremental verifiability of the computation and like actually uses the proof, right? Like dark forest is an example of something that actually uses a ZK proof as part of its yeah, mechanic. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. Yes. Yes. Not, not just like taking advantage of pure scalability. Right.
2: Okay. Yeah. My guess would be that's probably either bridging or identity. Um, is, is, is going to be the use case?
3: Yeah, for sure. I, I, that that's what gives me a cop out answer because I know <laughs> the, the bridge stuff is is like quite far on that. Right. But 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 I, I do think there will be one that like you will be able to use the MetaMask kind of kinda easily, relatively easily. Like it'll be as easy as using an L2, hopefully.
2: Well, the number one this year was also my pick earlier, which is Tornado. Which uh, I don't know that I'd say it's easy, but it's certainly you know it's 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 usable.
3: You could use, it, it's, yeah, like there's dot guides for how to use it. It's not just like, <laughs> hey, read my code and figure out how to use it, which is
0: like 90% of ZK stuff. True, 100%,
2: 100%. All right, Tom, what do you have, uh, your prediction for 2023?
0: Yeah, I'll try to keep it somewhat short. I think in terms of the, the industry, my one big prediction is we will start to see the first companies fold and shut down. There's this concept in venture capital of a J-curve. Basically, you you know invest in a bunch of, make a bunch of investments. The companies are going to fail fail before the companies are going to succeed. And so you sort of see returns, you know, drop from those failed companies in the short term. And then in dealing in the long term, you see those successful companies sort of uh, you know, lift your returns. And yeah, we've seen a lot of companies blow up um, as we've been discussing this entire podcast, but we haven't seen many companies shut down because they can't secure additional funding, they can't make enough money, they don't have product market fit. And so I think in my mind, that sort of truly signals the bottom when we start to see people wind down simply because they haven't found. PMF or they aren't generating enough revenue. So I think we will see that in 2023. I think in terms of like memes and trends that we'll probably see, I think RWA is going to become a big thing. Again, like people looking for productive assets, there's this new site rwa.xyz, makers leaning really hard into RWA. I think we'll see a real world assets become a big thing within DeFi. Account abstraction also see people seem really hyped about now, I think because of EIP 4337, um, basically allowing people to bundle different transactions or sort of arbitrarily um, sign and create transactions as opposed to just relying on an EOA. This is something I've personally been excited about for a very long time, like since back when I was at 0x. So excited to see if this actually hits mainstream next year. And then ZKEVM, it feels like it's kind of been, you know, bubbling the past few months. And I think it's going to finally sort of spill over next year. Independent of that means something on mainnet and live that people are using, but it feels like that's sort of where the forefront of, of, Excitement in cryptos is, is happening.
2: Yeah, I think I think we're going to see more excitement congeal around zkVMs. I don't know that they're going to be really that production ready next year. I think there'll, there'll be things that you can actually play around with and deploy things on, but I think there there's still a lot of rough edges to zkVMs. I think for all of them that um, I don't know that I don't know that it's it's going to be time for zkVMs to overtake optimistic rollups in 2023. But I agree with you. I think the story and the star is going to rise. Um, so There'll be more and more excitement around it. I suspect. So my predictions for 2023, I had two. First is the rise of roll-ups. I think both ZK and Optimistic. Of course, we have the the big Ethereum upcode repricing that's going to take place next year. That's going to massively lower the cost for uh, posting rollup data on-chain. That is going to make rollups now suddenly competitive with alt L1s in terms of pricing. And that's going to be a huge, huge shift. Now all of a sudden the the UX difference and the and the just you know the 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 cost difference between L2s and a polygon or a Solana or whatever will shrink—not you know collapse—but it will shrink significantly to the point where you know if it's a fraction of a cent or if it's one cent, you don't care. You know, it's not—we're not using order books; we're not doing anything that's super high throughput for most people. And so, for any normal use case, one cent is basically the same as a fraction of a cent. So, I think that is going to be a big catalyst for rollups this year, as well as just the development of zkVMs. And then, my second prediction for 2023 is that, as a direct result of FTX, we are going to see the exchange stack get disaggregated, meaning that we are going to see finally the the breakdown of this idea that you have these verticalized exchanges that do everything. They do, you know, the trade execution, they run the order book, they do the clearing, they do the brokerage, and they're the custodian. These things are going to get separated out, not all of them, but some of these functions are going to get separated out into separate players. And fairly soon, I, I would guess by the end of next year, you're going to see more and more, especially professional traders, but even just like, you know, kind of prosumers, being able to say, okay, I want my custody here, and then I'm going to use exchange for the Coinbase, for, I'm going to use Coinbase for exchange, and I'm going to do my lending and borrowing through this other person. That is going to become more and more common in crypto, and we're going to move toward more of like a tradfi like structure that makes things like FTX basically impossible because the same party that runs the exchange doesn't actually have access to the funds. So my guess is that's going to be one of the biggest immediate consequences from FTX's downfall.
3: Looking forward to your future Anon account called MPC bull.
2: <laughs> I do think the MPCs are going to be beneficiaries of it. Unfortunately, we didn't invest into any of the, well, maybe fortunately, given that everything's down, but we didn't invest into any of the MPC platforms, but uh, I am, I do think they're going to be big beneficiaries of this.
3: Yeah. It seems like it. Yeah. If, if, it seems like it if your prediction comes true. Yeah. Through. Well, if if my prediction comes through.
2: Cool. Well, guys, um, it's been a absolutely insane year. It's always a pleasure. This is, by the way, this is the one year anniversary also of the chopping block. So just, just as a, as a quick refresher, for those of you who weren't there at the time, before we started the chopping block, we actually started this as a dragonfly robot ventures, happy hour that we would do on Twitter spaces, like every Friday or something like that. And it was just like a casual thing where we were chatting. We were like, huh, this is really fun. We got like a good vibe. We, we, we have interesting takes that nobody else seems to really propound in public. So we should like do this as a regular thing. We got to know Laura we built a relationship and we decided to start trying this out as a regular show. And it's been absolutely amazing to just get all the feedback this year from everybody who watches the show. Like it's, it's, it's crazy for me. Like I go to a conference and I think, you know, people respond to us and I get emails and stuff like that. Uh, But it's especially true when I go to conferences, the number of people who listen to this show and get value out of it, especially in a year with so many crazy things happening that nobody else understands how to explain. who's not an insider. It's just been absolutely an incredible experience to do the show with you guys.
1: Plus one, this has been a lot of fun over the last year. So if you have things you'd like us to talk about or do or change or whatever, your feedback is also welcome and encouraged.
0: My big goal for the shopping block for 2023 is to get Tarun a good <laughs> Um and second goal is again to show up on time. Uh hopefully hopefully
3: I can see to your requests. Uh I, I just want to say really a lot of thanks to all of the listeners especially those of you who've like reached out and like talked to me about stuff um you know i think the our listener base is like, extremely broad and and that's thanks to Laura she's like obviously built up this like amazing listener base like that includes everyone from like people in normal finance lps at funds like technology people who are not in crypto who are just like okay this is the one thing i listen to every week to like See if crypto's still alive or dead, and like it's 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 been a lot of fun, kind of learning who's listening to this and and, and, and what what y'all are interested in. And then, yeah, as Robert says, like feedback on anything would be awesome.
2: Yeah. So one uh, change that we're going to be doing going forward into the new year is we are going to start um, doing fewer live streams and trying to do more podcasts. So uh, in general, we've we've seen that you guys really love the show. There's a lot of uptake of the podcast, much more so than the live stream. And just because all of us are kind of traveling around all the time and in different parts of the world, it's a lot easier to do these shows if we don't have to commit to doing live streams. We may still do live streams from time to time, but we're not going to have every single show be live streamed as we did in 2021. So that'll make it easier for us to do the show with a tighter cadence and make it more consistent uh, and also allow us to get the editing down. So just prepare for that in 2023. You're going to be hearing more of us, but it's not going to be uh, live streamed quite as often as it was last year we we hope you all have happy holidays and uh we hope that 2023 ends up being a gentler year to your portfolios than 2022 was um and i guess that's it from us happy holidays everybody
3: have a good new year happy new year Year.